Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Learn to work harder on yourself than you do on your job. If you work harder on your job, you'll make a living. If you work harder on yourself, you'll make a fortune. And the idea is to work on all areas of your life, your health, your finances, your character, your leadership development, your time with your family or spouse, and rather than just focusing on your job, which is good, right? Which is typically just making a living. And the reason for this is so that you can be more valuable to your family, your community, and also earn more as you add more value to the marketplace. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. Hey, everybody. My name is Viku, and welcome to the Real Estate Lab podcast, episode number five. Our guest today is the founder of Capital Gain Tax Solution. He helped numerous of business professionals with a tool that is an alternative to the 1031 exchange strategy, which is a tax deferred strategy used by many real estate investors. His company uses another tool called Deferred Sales Trust. This strategy is better than the 1031 strategies in many ways, and we will be discussing this in our episode today. Our guest has done numerous of these transactions along with Delaware Statutory Trust and 1031 exchanges. He had also closed over $85 million in commercial real estate transactions. Our guest today, Mr. Brett Swart, is one of the most well-rounded capital gains tax defer expert. So be sure to check out his website at www.capitalgainstaxsolutions.com or you can reach his office at 916-886-2986. Hey, and if you're interested in learning more about apartment syndication and multifamily investing, I wanted to personally invite you to join our free Facebook community you can head on over to www.eastwestventures.co slash AIMS to join. And now let's turn it over to my conversation with Brett's Word. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Our featured guest today is the founder of Capital Gain Tax Solution. Each year, he equips hundreds of business professionals with deferred sales trust tool to help their high net worth clients solve capital gains tax deferral limitations. His experience includes numerous of deferred sales trusts, Delaware statutory trusts, 1031 exchanges, 85 million in closed commercial real estate brokerage transaction. I think you will learn a lot today, especially on strategies about how to defer your capital gain tax or different ways you can use this strategy to help you defer your gain all the way until the time you die. Our special guest today, Mr. Brett Swart. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hey, V, thanks for having me. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on with you. Thank you, thank you. So I always start the show with asking the guests uh, to share a little bit about themselves, and I want to take it all the way back to the time, let's say you were seven or eight years old. What was it like growing up in your household? Yeah, thanks. So, so when I was seven and eight years old, I was between two households. Parents were divorced. My dad was in the Bay Area, Mission San Jose, Fremont, California. And when I spent more time with him, it was the entrepreneurial uh, developer, real estate investor, and I helped him build houses. And so he was having me hammer nails you know, move bricks, uh, did the grunt work, learned the, I like to say, I learned the sticks and bricks between the ages of, say, seven and, and 15 uh, uh, during the summer times, especially. The other times I was spent with my mom and we were, I was playing sports. I was playing basketball, baseball, football, and with friends and, um, and going to church 
and uh, living in Sacramento mainly. It's a place called Rockland, California. It's where actually I spent the majority of my time. So it was split between both households, but it was uh, both good good parents and uh, a really good childhood. So your childhood majority of your time is spent in California, and you're still there right now, correct? Correct. Yes, yeah. so I live basically in the same town I grew up in. It's in Roseville, which is right next to Rockland, which is in the Sacramento area of California. Okay. So you also, I imagine you went to high school in that area, also. I did. Yeah, I went to high school in 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 Rockland. Went to Rockland High School, and then I went on to college in, in Southern California, and then back up into Northern California uh, at William Jessup University. So. What was you like back then? Um, who were you? Um, you know, like just after high school and when you got into college, what were you like? Yeah, so I was, you know, I was uh, love sports. You know, I love playing on working with teams. Um, so I played basketball and football mainly in high school, and then I went away and played basketball in college as well. And I studied uh, business. You know, I was still learning about who I was and what I was going to do. Uh, I I knew I wanted, you know, I, I knew I knew something that had to do with it could be competitive. I've always been very competitive and kind of driven. So, um, I, you know, still learning about who I was. I, I, I was able to take an internship at a, a, a great company called Marcus and Millichap, where I learned investment real estate brokerage while I was still in college, which is what led. Uh, me to the career choice of being a commercial real estate broker and then now, now into this company. But yeah, that was kind of like the early 20s. Um, it was really just focused on sports and, and, and uh, obtaining my degrees and then uh, moving on to the uh, the working career world. So how did a guy who was interested in sport ended up working at Marcus Millichap? Was it something that you pursue or it just kind of fall in your lap? You know, I have a uh, an older cousin who was kind of like an older brother. He's like five years older. He was like a mentor of mine. And he he was actually working there. And he said, you might want to check this out. It might be a good fit. And so I just just went and interviewed for, for an internship when I was still like a junior in college. And I was able to to um, to win the internship and and just start to study in the investment real estate world. So it kind of fell in my lap in a lot of ways, um, knowing somebody and then once once I got into it, uh, learning that I loved it and uh, wanted to be in it full time. So you love real estate. You were doing like I said earlier, eighty five million plus in uh, brokerage transaction that you close. How did you go from there to being an expert on uh, the first sales trust? And can you tell us what the first sales trust is? Great question. So when I, well, actually, was that Marcus and Millichap? The marketplace really took a dive in two thousand eight. Uh, that's really when I started really full time was in kind of 07. And then everything kind of hit the fan and and things are really tough, especially in California. Uh, and so my manager at the time, he he, he decided to bring in a, a gentleman to speak on this strategy that was an alternative to a 1031 exchange. And this is around 2010, 2009. And so we were looking for creative solutions for clients who wanted to get out of debt and maybe didn't want to be so heavy into real estate. And so he talked about this deferred sales trust as an alternative or a backup plan for a failed 1031 exchange. And really the focus of Marcus and Millichap has always been to add value in any way we can to help uh, move transactions forward and help our clients achieve their, their investment real estate goals. And so this became a focus of mine and where I started to just study the, study the structure, study the strategy, study the tax law. And went on to receive training in my Series 22 and Series 63 licenses um, and obtained those licenses and started to um, educate clients on it. And, and as they gravitated it towards it more and use it, we fast forward 10 years when the marketplace is kind of feeling like the 0607 all over again. And it's become apparent that some people want to get out of debt, you know, and they want to actually not have to 1031 and be done with the toilets, trash and liabilities. So at the center of it, it was how do we solve challenges and problems and add value? And and everyone's and with the changing of times, it's it's uh, the deferred sales trust is a great solution for that. So what is the deferred sales trust? Well, it's just an installment sale fee, and your listeners might know about it as like a seller carry back. Uh, the only difference is we're using this third party trust. Um, to to jump in between an actual buyer and an actual seller who are ready to do a deal. 
And when you do that, you're able to, to defer capital gains tax uh, using this installment um, sale with the trust for, for as long as you want. Um, and you also be able to invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, or hard money lending, or back into commercial real estate, which is actually my favorite part of all of it. Uh, the ability to, to what we, we like to say is give optimal timing. You know, buy when you when you when you when you want to versus when you have to with the 1031 exchange. Right. Yeah. The 1031 exchange. One thing I hate about it, and I also went through one a few years ago, was the timeline: the 45 days, the 180 days close. It was tough to find properties that I can place the money in that short amount of time. Yeah, the pressure builds for clients. You know, they feel trapped, they feel rushed, they feel forced. Those are a lot of the feelings that we hear from our clients before they find find us and, and learn about how this can can save their failed 1031 exchange. And oftentimes, unfortunately, the seller knows, you know, the buyer's in a 1031 and they use that against them. And generally speaking, they're not very um, amenable on negotiations for for credits that might otherwise uh, be appropriate. Um, so overpaying for properties oftentimes. And so the other thing with the 1031 exchange is we call it the timing, you know, the, the, the un, unfortunate timing. When you, when you get a good sell price for your property, you have 180 days to, to sell that. And we, we think it's a seller's market right now for a lot of marketplaces. And we found that if it's a seller's market, you may not want to buy in that same marketplace, right? Where you're getting a high price. Because 180 days later, you may be buying even at a higher price. And you also typically have to, you have to replace the debt. So, so you may be taking on more debt. And that can be a challenge. So we like to say is our parents taught us to sell high and buy low. They right. didn't teach us to sell high and buy higher again. And, and the 1031 just doesn't give that really give that option. Well, the deferred sales trust, on the other hand, you can sell high, pay off all your debt you know, put the money into the trust. And then when you find a deal tomorrow or day 181 or even a couple of years from now, there's no timing restriction whatsoever. There's a caveat to that though. Only about 80% of the funds can be set up into this LLC to buy a new property. Um, the other 20% stay with the financial advisor. Um, but again, if you can buy at a discount or, or buy when a deal makes sense, we love that. The second part about it is you get a new depreciation schedule. and a 1031 exchange, you have to, uh, when you when you part of the 1031 exchange rules is when you trade the depreciation schedule travels. So one of the main reasons to own real estate, investment real estate, is to offset the income with depreciation write off. But if you own apartments for over 27 and a half years or on a commercial property for 39, you deplete all of your depreciation, and at that point um, the income's coming in with no no um, tax um, break from the depreciation. The deferred sales trust, on the other hand, when you buy it's a brand new depreciation. It, the depreciation disc schedule doesn't travel, so you get a whole other uh, set of depreciation, which is really nice. So those are those are kind of the main reasons people would would, would consider a deferred sales trust versus just a, uh, a ten thirty one. Okay, so you mentioned the deferred sales trust. You have a brand new depreciation schedule, right? If I just park the money in the deferred sales trust and I don't buy anything else at all, I just park it there and. You know, I assume you will invest it somewhere with uh, the Goldman Sachs of the world, Merrill Lynch, and you get a certain percentage uh, gain every year. So how does the depreciation work at that point if I don't ever buy any more property? Right. Good point. So you're correct. It only works with and when you buy more investment real estate, such as invest into a syndication uh, uh, by by the funds being invested in other deals. So yeah, if it's a stocks, bonds, mutual funds, it's just sitting there. Then you're not you're, there's no depreciation. But when you find a deal uh, again, let's imagine there's a million sitting in the trust. Eight hundred thousand dollars the next day can be sent to an LLC that you you form V and you're the managing member of, and that that you then buy into investment real estate syndication deals multiple ones or just 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 one of your own and that right there gives you a brand new depreciation schedule as as opposed to doing a 1031 into that same property the schedule would have traveled so so that's a good point of clarification okay so another question i have is let, let me just take a step back to see if i understand this the structure for the trust correctly or not what I see is you have an A side and a B side. The A side 
myself as the seller, I'm selling the property to the deferred sales trust with an owner carry note at a certain percentage. Correct. Correct. Okay, and then on the B side, this deferred sales trust will sell the property to the B side buyer where they get a new loan, and then they pay cash to fund the this trust. Correct. Exactly right. Okay, so when when I um, set this up as a trust, and you you mentioned earlier, I can take eighty percent of the funding out to do to create a new LLC and buy into something else. Is that a note that the trust is giving this new LLC, or how does that work? That's a JV partnership. So if it wasn't, if it was a loan, then it would be taxable and it'd be considered constructive receipt, and okay. therefore you'd owe the tax. But if you just JV partner with the with the trust, then it's not. It's a non-taxable event, and you're going to own that deal with the trust. So typically, it's a it's it's a ninety ten split. Okay. Okay. With you and the trust, even though the trust puts up 100% of the down payment, but 90% goes to UV personally and 10% to the trust. Again, even though the trust puts up 100% of the down payment. So it's a really nice structure uh, that's very favorable to you and also uh, very tax efficient to get that, that brand new depreciation schedule. So I can see this is almost like the inception. You, you, you keep on doing this, right? You have at the first sales trust number one, giving you eighty percent to go out and buy property, and JV uh, with with this trust, you in this new company, you have ninety percent of it, and the trust has ten percent. Then when you sell the second property, so you personally are you liable for ninety percent of the gain? Correct, and so you can do two things with that: you can roll it into the trust, or you can do a ten thirty one with that ninety percent. And then you just pay back the trust uh, with its preferred return and the original investment it put in if you wanted to maintain 100% tax deferral. And by the way, most of our notes, they earn 8%, and, and that's what, and then they pay out about 6.5%, and they're 10-year note terms, 10 years. But at the end of 10 years, you can renew for 10 and then keep renewing for 10 for as long as you want. And then it can pass inside of your estate to your heirs. And your heirs uh, continue to be in that position to just receive the payments and or do what exactly what you're doing, buying and selling real estate. So the, the, the bigger picture is to sell when you want to sell, get out of debt when it's, when it's smart to get out of debt, and then wait for that right deal to come in a place. And then if the right deal comes tomorrow or it's in a different marketplace or it's a different product type with a different operator, you have the freedom with up to 80% of that funds to invest in those other deals and take on debt if you want to, by the way. It doesn't have to be all cash. You can, you can get debt and buy, buy those deals. But we think it's just it's, it's, it's smart to take on debt when prices make sense. It's not so smart to take on debt when the prices are really high because that puts a lot of risk. And again, the 1031 is typically one entity trading for one entity and all the risk is on UV, whereas uh-huh. the deferred sales trust you could take 80% and put all the risk on the trust in you if you want to, but but you may want to just diversify into eight different product types. You could go into mobile home parks. You can go into senior housing. You can go into multifamily. You can go into multiple geographical locations. So you're diversifying your commercial real estate holdings. And then also the other percentage of it could be in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds if you're choosing as well. Very conservative allocations that are paying you a nice, nice return. But the key is you can be completely out of debt. And it's also very flexible to go back into real estate if and when you want to. And um, really, we have to say at optimal timing, which is, I think, the key to everything here. If you can buy right at the right timing and given enough time, if you see enough pitches, if you imagine you're a baseball player, you're going to see that right pitch and then you can actually hit it. But if you're faced with a lot of pressure to have to overpay, then oftentimes you're going to swing at a wrong pitch and it could you could strike out. And that's what we want to avoid. And also, by the way, the Deferred Sales Trust for your listeners, it works for high-end primary homes. We did a recent deal in Newport Beach. It was a $26 million sale. And we helped a couple defer $6 million in capital gains tax beyond their exclusion. And they needed to sell, and they lived there two of the last five years. So they had that 121 exclusion, which 500000 is exempt. But beyond that, they owed $6 million. And so the 1031 does not solve that. The Deferred Sales Trust does. And so we saved them all of that. And then again, once the funds are there, they can put it in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, or back into commercial real estate and live off the interest. It also works for the sale of businesses. So most businesses, V, they don't do 1031 exchanges or they just sell it 
And so what we do is we just say, look, do a deferred sales trust and, uh, and, and go back into uh, to real estate. And so that's, that's also a big bonus. And this also works for collectibles. It works for artwork. It works for private stock. It, works for, it can work for public stock. Um, it works for any, any LLC, you know, LLCs, S-Corps, C-Corps, partnerships. So it's very flexible for that. Is there any limitation for this strategy? You know, the only real limitation is where and how the funds are invested. So you can't, you can't direct those 80% to a primary home. That's considered constructive receipt. You can't live in the home that you're investing in. So it can't be a primary home. Um, also, the investments must be within the United States. Uh, it can't be foreign investments. It needs, to, it needs to be basically nothing outside of the U.S. and not a primary home. But everything else, as long as it's investment purpose, it can do. It can invest into businesses. It can invest, uh, you know, it can do hard money lending. It can do commercial real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. One of the downsides to it, which is important to note to your listeners, is a 1031 maintains the stepped up basis. And the stepped up basis is a really not neat thing where you can essentially, uh, if, if and when you die, uh, which we're all going to die, but when we die, as it stands today, uh, our heirs get a stepped up basis on our estate as and and uh, that is good, meaning they could they could sell and walk away tax free. The deferred sales trust does not do that, um, and it's actually an exit strategy um, that defers. And therefore, if and when they cash out of the trust, of the uh, they're going to pay capital gains tax. However, that being said, you know many in Congress they're looking for ways to pay for this twenty two trillion in debt, and they're talking about taking away the ten thirty one. They're talking about taking away the stepped up basis or limiting it. So we don't know uh, if that'll even be around by the time these things changing. And some of the bigger picture going on too, V, to mention is that there's $17 trillion that's going to pass from one generation to the next. And this is the largest wealth transfer in the history of the world. And this is by the baby boomers, okay? The baby boomers um, are, are the second largest generation in the history of the world. And they're passing all this wealth. There's about 77 million in the U.S. alone. And about every single day, about 10,000 baby boomers turn 65. And they're trying to figure out a way to get out of the toilets, out of the trash, out of the liability, out of having to manage employees, how to get out of debt. But they're faced with 30 to 50% of their gain being wiped out by capital gains tax and depreciation recapture. So this is the biggest problem facing these baby boomers who want to retire, who want to enjoy time travel, liquidity, and diversification. They've gone through 2008, and they don't want to face that again. They're 10 years older, 11 years older, and they're saying, man, I want to get out of debt. I want to diversify. I don't want to get stuck with a property in a location uh, when the market shifts or get stuck with banks that won't refinance my debt. And so most most either don't sell 1031 exchange um, and maybe take on too much debt, um, but we want to give them another solution with the deferred sales trust. Okay, so... Is there a certain demographic that works better for this strategy that you see majority of your clients are, are in this um, age range or does it work for well for everyone? I think it works well for everyone. I think you just have to define your why. So depending on what stage of life you're in, what is your why for investing in passive cash flow real estate? And how are you going to make the best risk adjusted rate of return on your equity? And is it, does it mean you want to diversify outside of, of just the properties you own, right? Um, do you want to be more passive? You know, what, again, what stage of life are you in? Now, if you can find, by the way, if you can find a nice 1031 deal with some value add opportunity, we, that's our favorite. We help people do 1031 exchanges too. We love that. I'm a commercial real estate broker by trade. I just think that market for a lot of places was three or five years ago. And it's just not today. Um, doesn't mean you can't find a deal. And by the way, go for it and, and have us as a backup plan just in case it fails. It doesn't. We don't charge anything for a backup plan. We only get paid if you close close with the deferred sales trust. But we don't want you to overpay. We don't want want you to take on what we call dumb debt. Dumb, dumb. You know, smart debt takes on debt when the marketplace is very you know a buyer's market. When when there's nice deals out there, low price per square foot. There's lots of value add. And so we call that really smart debt. Take on smart debt when, the, when you can find a nice value-add deal. Risky debt is the second part of the debt equation, which, which basically stays in debt um, even though their price of their property has gone way up. And they're just like, you know, I'm not going to sell and overpay, 
but I'm just going to stay where I'm at. And you're risking that equity that you've built up. Um, and we call dumb debt is when you double down and take on even more and overpay for a property just because you got a nice offer on your deal and you end up taking on more debt and put yourself at risk on a non-value-add deal with high, high LTV. And that's the thing we really want to avoid right now is taking on dumb debt because if the market shifts, um, you could be in a tough spot and the Deferred Sales Trust is the solution for that. By the way, for your listeners, they're probably wondering, how do we know this thing is legal? How do I know the funds are protected? So this is a 23-year-old track record with over thousands of closes, okay? Close to 3,000 closes. And we have over 150 financial advising firms and thousands of financial advisors with us. We have CPAs, tax attorneys, national law firms. It's been vetted by the IRS 14 times, and each time it's been a no-change audit. So not one single issue with the trust. And by the way, the tax law is IRC 453, which goes back to the 1920s. It's a 90-year-old tax law. So it's, it's, it's tried and true. We've already blazed the trail. We're not asking anybody to, uh, to try something new in the sense of, of our track record. It may be new for your listeners because they've never quite heard of an installment sale like this, but we do have, we do have the track record to, 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 to share with you. And more than that, though, we see our, our role V as the guide and we, we, we encourage each, each, each of our clients to bring in their own trusted advisors. And, and a better way to look at it is like, I'm kind of like a nurse and I take the pulse of, of the client and, and say, it might be a good fit for you. Before you get surgery, though, bring in your trusted advisor, bring in your CPA tax attorney, have them talk with the CPA tax attorneys who created the structure. Those guys are the brain surgeons. And if it looks good, you know, have surgery. Great. And that'll, that'll work out, I think, well for you. So that's, that's sort of the um, also a little more context for your listeners, too. Got it. So it's it sounds like this is a big operation, and you have a lot of professional who are working in in this team with you. What's the deal size that makes sense for someone to come to you? Great question. Yeah, our average deal is about two point six million, and we're deferring somewhere between three fifty and five hundred five hundred fifty thousand dollars in tax. The minimum is five hundred thousand dollars in proceeds. Okay, and for every hundred thousand dollars in actual liability. So, so let's say, for example, you had a $10 million sale V and you only had $100,000 in liability. We would say those ratios aren't very good. Just pay the tax and walk away with 9.9. But if you had a, a $10 million sale and you had a $3 million tax, we'd say, whoa, that's a big one V. But you don't, you don't want to walk away with $7 million. You know, put, let's have $10 million in the trust. We use the rule or the law of 72, the rule of 72, which states, if you can earn 7% on any given amount and allow that amount to compound and build on top of itself, that amount will double. So let's say you could earn 7% on 10 million over a 10-year period of time, and you let that 7% compound. In 10 years, that'll be $20 million. So it's the law of compound interest. Um, and so that's where we look, we, we try to really look at that ROI. But generally speaking, Every $100,000 of liability for every $500,000 of actual proceeds into the trust. So for every $100,000 of liability, V, we want about $500,000 of proceeds. So that's generally the number there. We want to make sure those ratios make sense. So every $100,000 that you're actually going to pay to the government, state, federal, Obamacare, and depreciation recapture, we want to have at least $500,000 of proceeds going in. That's that's kind of the, uh, the ratio. So one to five ratio? Essentially, yes. Okay. So for someone who has, say, single family home, is there a strategy for them to do something similar? Yeah. So single family primary home or investment property, right? So if you have listeners who, let's say they own 20 single family individual homes, it's very difficult to sell and do a 1031 with those, right? Right. They can sell each individual home and move them into the trust. Um, one by one slowly, right? Instead of selling them off to bulk to an investor. So that's a really good advantage of, of that. Um, and then once they're all pulled together, you can pull 80% to go ahead and, and, and buy into a big you know, apartment complex or whatever. So that's nice. And then again, it also works for primary homes. So I'm doing a deal right now in Palo Alto. It's, it's, a, it's a $14 million primary home sale. The gentleman is selling for, he's selling, uh, his basis is $6 million. And so above his, above his exclusion, he owes about $2.2 million in tax. And so we're going to help him, instead of walking away with about $6 million after he pays off debt, he's going to uh, 
or walking away with four, he's going to walk away with six. So he's really happy about that. So a lot of these owners, they feel, uh, they feel real estate rich, but cash flow poor. So we're going to help them uh, be able to get some passive income and get, in, and get out of feeling trapped um, from, uh, from their property. Okay, so you mentioned passive income there. Let me ask you a little bit here. So for that, for the trust, right? When you go out and let's say you want to buy a building by yourself, you take on debt. Is that a recourse loan, a non-recourse loan? Yeah. So when, once you're in the trust, you're going to form a brand new LLC and, and you're going to partner with your trust and you're going to go buy a property the same way you would have today. They're going to say, well, who are you, V? What's your background? What's your credit? And who are your investors? Well, the investor happens to be the trust and the trust is paying you an income um, off of the interest of the note. And, and so that's going to be qualified as income as well. And so all of it's going to collectively, they're going to underwrite you and your income streams to qualify for the debt on the next property. Um, so yeah, that's the same way, the same way you would have um, in any other deal. Right. But then for commercial loans, typically you have a key principal person uh, that has to qualify for the size of the loan. So in this case, your your trust would have to act in that capacity. Uh, so it'd be you. I mean, you're the managing member of the LLC who okay. happens to have partners. And by the way, you could have multiple, you could have 10 partners. And then one of the partners is just your trust. It's It's very flexible there. So the bank's going to say... Um, who's personally guaranteeing this, or is it a non-recourse loan, right, where there where there's no personal guarantee? Every deal is different, but imagine it was a turnkey, multifamily, ninety-five percent occupied, be your better property. You know, it's called a six cap in in Denver, right? Right. Awesome. Uh, they're going to underwrite the property, and they're going to say who's the sponsor, who's buying it, who's the general partner, and who are the partners. Where's the cash coming from, right? So they're going to look at everything as a whole. So, but you're the one buying the property. So I would say the managing member is the one buying the property. He happens to have silent partners and every bank's going to be a little bit different with their, with their, with their criteria, but the, the trust should not affect, it should not be an adverse effect to get a loan, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Um, so let's say you bring on, you bring in partner and you do this syndication, you take it through a cycle from acquisition to disposition. Are you so you have partner? How does the partnership work with the um, trust being in there as well as yourself? Great question. So the trust is a silent partner, and they're going to get a preferred return. Generally, we we mirror the note, so we mirror an eight percent preferred return for the money that they put in. Okay. Okay. And and then plus they get ten uh, percent upside. Okay. Ten percent upside. So let's just say. You bought a property for a million dollars, okay? Okay. And then you're going to sell it for three million. You got a two million dollar profit, okay? Okay. And, and let's just say the trust, for sim- simplicity, let's just say it bought it all cash, all put all a million from the trust. So you guys, no debt on the property. What happens when you sell? Well, the original million is going to go back in, plus the eight percent preferred return, and then what, what's ever left over of that other of that two million minus the eight percent preferred return is going to be split 90 percent to V as the managing member and ten percent to the trust. And then, and then at that point, I can either do a ten thirty one or I can open with up your ninety. Trust. Yes, with your ninety percent, right. you can, or you can roll that into the trust as note number two, and now you have a bigger, bigger, uh, uh, a bigger amount to work with for, for a new eighty percent. Oh, okay. So I don't have to create another trust. I can just roll it right into the you original one. You just create one trust and you have multiple notes. So if somebody had 15 apartment complexes, they create one trust and they can just slowly trade their apartment complexes into the trust. Okay, then here comes another question. Is this the the first sales trust, is it different than Delaware Statutory Trust? Yes. So the Delaware Statutory Trust is just a mutual fund of properties, like a mutual fund of properties, that you're going to 1031 into. So you're using a different tax code, okay? It's IRC 1031, that is a 1031 exchange, versus IRC uh, 453, which is a deferred sales trust. So they're separate tax codes with different rules. But a Delaware is also a DST, so sometimes it gets this, uh, uh, con, uh, confused with the deferred sales trust. So basically, a Delaware, you're just moving in with a sponsor, you're giving up 
all the control. They're managing the property, typically seven to 10 year holds, typically around 5% return on your money for most of the deals that we see, um, and typically pretty high fees. Um, and and it's, it's really kind of basically 100% passive. Whereas the deferred sales trust, you can have a mix. You know, you could have, let's say it was a million dollar deal. You could put 500,000 in, into, into uh, your own deal. Okay. Then you have another 300,000 of room to put into maybe a couple syndication deals. And then you have 200,000 that just stays with the financial advisor and stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So you're, you're diversified, right? Outside of geographical locations, property types. And also you're, again, you're not having to replace any of that debt. Okay. So my next question is something that I did and I'm interested in seeing how this could work for me. I did a 1031 exchange into a syndication where I am on title uh, as tenant in common, right? So from what you explained to me so far, I understand that the depreciation schedule from my original property is basically I walked it over to this new one. So when I cash out of this next property, the syndication, can I do the first sales trust? Yes, 100%. That's the beautiful part about it. So whether you're a general partner and you have carried interest or you're a limited partner and you're just you know a tenant in common or in part of an LLC interest or whatever, we can take your position, regardless of what anyone else does, and put it into your own deferred sales trust. Now imagine there's 10 partners and they each they all said, well, V, this is a great idea. I want to do it with mine too. Great, no problem. They can each have their own deferred sales trusts separate from everybody else's with their own financial advisor and none of the funds are commingled and they can all go their separate way. So very flexible and a great way to sever partnerships. Okay, is there anything that people who participate in, in this should Watch out for it. For instance, like in um, IRA or 401k, they have rules and regulation that you need to follow to the T or else you're going to incur some kind of penalty. Is there something like that for the first sales trust? Except for the primary home living there, you know, okay. um, the, the trustee has to be a third party unrelated trustee. That's what I am, right? I'm not related to the note holder. It can't be a brother, sister, cousin. Those are the main things uh, that you have to focus on. I have to be in it for business purpose. I must be able to make a profit. So those are all kind of the technical IRS stuff. The question, most of the question is, it sounds, this seems like it's too good to be true. Why haven't I heard of it? You know, am I going to put myself at risk with the IRS? And the answer is, is all no. We're, we, mm-hmm. our, our tax attorneys stand 100% behind the, t- uh, the structure. There's not been one single issue in thousands of closings in 23 years. Um, and you just got to get to know us. And the first time you ride the bike, it's a little bit awkward. If you never rode the bike before, the deferred sales trust bike. But once you ride it, it makes, you know, it, it really rides well and, and, and you're going to like it a lot. And again, back to the demographics, especially folks who are getting older, um, they're looking for a solution beyond the 1031. I just did a deal in Sacramento. It was an 18-unit apartment complex. The gentleman moved to a deferred sales trust. And his, this is his quote. I said, why did you choose the, the deferred sales trust? And he was looking at the Delaware. He was looking right. at the 1031. I said, why did you choose the deferred sales trust? He goes, well, Brett, I had 18 problems. I was driving up from Marin, California to manage 18 units, collect rents. It was, an, it was not a nice part of town. I was just, I'm turning, I'm close to 70 years old. I'm ready to retire. And he goes, I didn't want to trade 18 problems for 36 problems and take on more debt. He goes, I also wanted liquidity, the ability to access the cash, you know, and be able to cash out and pay the tax if I want to, or put it into commercial real estate at my own timing. And so those things solved what he was looking for. And he was really happy about that. So that's the key is just, just figuring out, empowering you with the tool and you decide how you want to use it. Maybe you want to do a half 1031 and a half this. We can do that. You know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can do a a third, a third of a Delaware, a third of a deferred sales trust, and a third of a 1031. It's flexible for those for those reasons. Um, it's very flexible, so it doesn't have to be all or nothing, which is also a good point to mention here. Okay, so now that you have taught us about this tool, and you said that there's minimal limitation except for the primary resident, right? So why is it that someone 
Why does someone need to come to you at Capital Gains Tax Solutions to do the deferred sales trust as opposed to, let's just say, I go to my attorney or I go to my CPA and say, I'll pay you to be my trustee and let's just get this done? <laughs> Great question. So it's first of all, it's a proprietary structure. And we do have other attorneys that we work with and CPAs, and they they join us is what happens you can get surgery with somebody who's never done a deferred sales trust and you could, you could, you, you couldn't call it a deferred sales trust and you could try to do, do what we're doing here. Um, but a, they, you may not want to put yourself in those hands. Uh, but B the, the structure itself, um, is proprietary. They're not going to know probably how to do it. Um, and they're going to want to connect with us. And again, we have thousands of professionals that just join us and we have, we have the, we have the 14 IRS audits and we have the, 23-year track record. So I would just say they just, they're not going to know how to do it, to be, to be honest with you. And then B, even if they tried it, you're putting yourself um, you're at risk in case they make a mistake. And if they make a mistake, then that's, you're going to pay the tax, right? That's, that's, that's really what you want to, if I'm in your shoes, you want to be careful of. The part about the trustee. So yeah, I'm one of the exclusive trustees with the, with, with the, with uh, the estate planning team. And so with that, every case must have a third-party trustee. So you're welcome to bring another trustee in if you want to, and you can pay out of your pocket. But you also have to you have to have an assigned trustee within within the program. So that's they want to make sure that this is executed properly, and that's part of the role of the trustee to make sure that the tax return is filed properly, and that everyone is on um, everyone as a team is working together. So uh, question It's it answer partly. I'm trying to play a devil advocate here because what I'm seeing is the, the structure is very similar to from the single family side. We sell a property to with an installment sale, uh, land contract or uh, owner finance, owner carry back, except for in this case, you are selling it to a trust, which you can have someone, uh, a third party person being uh, the trustee for you. Of course, this this trustee has to know all the information, all the rules and regulation that your company or, and yourself know you know, to qualify. But if someone doesn't match your minimum threshold that you that you said earlier, the five to one ratio, I'm trying to think of a way that we can do it for for people who are not your ideal customer? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing, great question being great points. Um, I think the first thing to understand is why wouldn't, why wouldn't somebody just do a regular installment sale? Why, why do this deferred sales trust? Right. right. So in a traditional installment sale, you're just counting on this buyer that may or may not be able to qualify for a loan to own your property. And only your, your collateral is only tied to that buyer in your property in one single location in one area and one product type. And it's neither liquid nor is it diversified. And oftentimes it's not investment grade property. The difference with ours is our investments are investment grade. They're diversified. And the collateral is in commercial real estate, other deals, you know, multiple deals. And it gives you, it gets you away from, from the traditional installment sale. Um, as far as how, how small the deals are, yeah, that that we just found with our fees, that's why it's got to be, you know, those numbers. It's just if it's too small, our fees eat up the ROI. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, we just tell you to pay the tax. So, um, unfortunately, that's just that's just the the nature of of the structure and the fees and the cost of everything. Yes. Yeah, so, what I see is the solution to this. What I see from what you just discussed is that if you're not at that threshold, what you should do is do ten ten thirty one. You keep on expanding, keep growing your business, your portfolio until you hit that threshold where it makes sense to go to your company and, and do the deferred sales trust. That or what you do is you just uh, pay the tax and don't overpay and sit on the sidelines until you find a deal that makes sense, right? You don't want to uh, overpay, right? That's the last thing we want to do. But yeah, but if you can find a deal in 1031, then, then do that too. Maybe what are the fees? That's often a question people want to know. Oh, yeah. So what's your fee? Yeah, what's the fees? Millions of dollars. No, we don't charge that much. So we like to keep our fees as low as we possibly can. A traditional trustee fee, which is, by the way, this is my role here as a trustee, is somewhere between 1% and 1.5%. We only charge about 50 basis points to 1%, depending on where the funds are invested. 
So if it's with a 100% financial advisor, it's just 50 basis points, okay? It's a half of 1% on the proceeds um, uh, on the account, the account trust, trust value. If they go into real estate, it's, it's, uh, it's 100 basis points or 1%, okay? Um, now, the other fees are the financial advisors. So depending on, on where the funds are invested, it's also another 50 to 100 basis points, depending on where they're at. So in the beginning, I said most of our notes earn 8V, and after fees, they pay about 6.5. That's kind of the cash flow an owner can expect. So imagine it was $10 million that you were selling, and you had a $3 million tax bill. We always say, start with that, V. What is your fee? Your first fee is $3 million to the IRS. You can pay that, or let's keep all $10 million in there, and let's hopefully earn about 8, and after fees, net you about 6.5%. Right, so you're going to look at that ROI and see does that make sense. Um, the only other fee is to the tax attorney, and that's just a one-time fee, and that happens at close of the trust, and that's 1.5 percent on the first million, and then 1.25 on anything above that. So again, if it was a 10 million dollar deal, the first million be 1.5 percent, and the remaining nine million be 1.25 percent. That includes audit defense for the life of the trust, and that includes uh, the legal and tax structure. And uh, the communication with the uh, CPAs to uh, to file the tax return properly. So that's yeah, that's th- those are the those are the fees. Okay, so your fee is a yearly fee, and then the attorney fee is a one-time fee at close of the trust. Which mean it, you could drag it on to the time you die before you pay it, or yeah, most of our clients like to pay the tax the second date and ever, right? And the rule is seventy-two. Which again, hopefully you're going to earn more than seven percent um, after net of fees, everything on your full ten million. Let's use that number again. And you're going into real estate, and you're buying it at the right time, and you're diversifying, and you know, hopefully you're making ten, twelve, fifteen percent on the other side of real estate deals, and you're making about you know eight percent in the financial advising world over a ten year period, and you're netting about six and a half. So all of that together. You just keep living off the interest, right? And you just keep it deferred and you pass it on to your kids. It's the same reason you do 1031 exchanges forever because you never want to dip into the principal and pay pay boot is what it's called. But by the way, along the way, if you want to cash out a portion of the deferred sales trust, you can do that, right? You can you can do that. You may have a you know a million in there with the financial advisor and you want to travel the world tomorrow. We call it trade plus three. The, the funds are liquid. You can just sell out of the stocks and bonds, send you the 100,000, and then you're going to pay tax on that hundred, right? But at least it's on the hundred and not on the full million. So it's liquidity, which is very nice, diversification, and then hopefully earn enough to offset the fees and really uh, defer the tax for as long as you want. So then I have another question for you. As for the um, what you describe is like an ATM, right? You can draw the money out the, anytime you want. And I'm I'm thinking this is the twenty percent that you have in the trust, the, the other 80%, you, you have it in real estate or something else that you cannot touch because it's not, it's not yeah, that so easy. Yeah, so let me clarify there. So if 80% went out, then that other 20% has to stay with the financial advisor. In that scenario, that 20% is non-liquid, okay? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, the only time, so imagine 100% is with the financial advisor, then you can, you can just cash out of everything tomorrow and pay the tax. But if you send out 80% to a non-liquid asset, like a commercial real estate deal, then that 20% is a reserve. It's sitting with a financial advisor, earning interest. Why? Because we want to make sure we can pay the note, right? We want to service, we want to make sure we service the debt. That's also why we we don't uh, we don't allow the 100% to go out either, because we want to make sure there's enough room to actually pay you, because that is the role of the trustee and of the deferred sales trust to pay you back the agreed upon amount of interest. Yeah, so just to clarify that part, you, you got to have the you got to but but let's say you put fifty percent to a deferred sales trust deal, oh, I'm sorry, to a commercial real estate deal within the deferred sales trust, then you have what thirty percent that's liquid that you're right, and you could just you know cash out of that thirty percent as long as you maintain that twenty percent amount that's still there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you use seventy percent, you have thirty percent left. You can cash out ten percent and leave yes. the ten, twenty in there. You got it. Awesome, man. I'm, I learned a ton today. This is great stuff. Now, this is the portion that I call rapid fire round. I ask the same five questions of every guest before the end of the show. Perfect. Let's go. What is the one special ability that you wish you had? That I wish I had? 
Right. Oh man. Um, the ability, like a superhero ability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, to be able to heal people of any disease, you know, they had any kind of sickness or disease. Which single habit gives you eighty percent of your result? <sighs> um, communicating and uh, educating um, on podcasts, webinars, face-to-face meetings, anything that's actually in front of the the uh, you know our preferred vendor um, or uh, client. I feel like it's more like you're educating people on this topic not a lot of people understand what this is and what you're doing is giving tremendous value to the community oh thank you v that's very very appreciative that means a lot what's another profession other than your own that you think will be fun for you to attempt oh i wish i mean if, if i could pick any profession i'd want to be i'd want to play in the nba i love basketball <laughs> or coach NBA. or coach i want actually that's one of my dreams i want to be a college basketball coach or high school basketball coach there you go. I mean, you can do it right now if you have the time. Yeah. The challenge is I have five kids, so I got to coach them <laughs> until they're 18. And then, you know, Lord willing, I'll be able to uh, send them off to college and then be able to coach. There you go. And then go to their coach, their college. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Maybe get two for one deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, this next question I typically ask real estate investor and is how has investing in real estate helped fulfill your dream or your life goal? Yeah, and another way to say it would be, what's the most fulfilling part about real estate investing? Right. Um, so, just the once you start having passive income that you're not having to actively work for, trade time for dollars, it's just so powerful because it frees you up from pressure from your employer or pressure from doing another deal. Um, it gives you that little extra amount to be able to give, and it it. It's truly amazing the ability to do compound interest and invest on the investments that you have um, to have that freedom. And this is the, you know, we call it freedom from capital gains taxes. But really what we're, what we're about is the freedom to have a passive lifestyle so that you can spend more time doing what you enjoy doing or more time with your family or more time volunteering or giving back. And so I would say that is the number one reason I love, I love investment real estate. Last question. Who do you think I should interview on the next episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast? Oh, gosh, you probably know all of them. But if you haven't interviewed Michael Blanc yet, if you haven't interviewed um, Rod Cleef, if you haven't interviewed Joe Fairless, if you haven't interviewed Buck Joffrey, he's fantastic. Um, yeah, any of those ones are really, really good. And I can give you a list of more, too, if you're, if you're looking for more. Is there anyone that you can uh, give me an introduction to? Yeah, I don't see why not. Absolutely. Email me and let's let's try it. Um, I'm still trying to build my influence with everybody, but I've been on all of those shows. I just, yeah, I saw your introduction for Michael Blanc. Yeah, absolutely. Let's try it. I'll, I'll try to put you in front of me. Absolutely. That's all the time we have for today's show. Brett, thank you so much. You have been incredible. I really appreciate your time. And I know you're extremely busy and you're doing something that is really great for the community. And I wish you success thank you for the time thank you v my pleasure love the episode of the real estate lab podcast share the show with all your friends subscribe and give the show a five stars rating on itunes until next time have an awesome work week